from the campus of Stanford University. This is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know, and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Denise Pope, it is always good to talk with you. (laughs) Always fun. I'm glad to be here with you, Dan. Well, me too. So we're going to talk about school reform and maybe the utopia of what we dream of schools. But to get started, I wanted to talk about my first teaching assignment. And so I was – my undergrad was in philosophy. And, you know, my choice was do I become a taxi driver (laughs) or or do I do something – Something more using all my talents. And I, I decided I would teach. And I got an emergency credential in about three weeks to teach in a hard place in Los Angeles. And uh, it's a fairly complicated thing. And they didn't let me know what my teaching assignment was until the very day. The, the first day of class? The first day of class. So, oh. I, so I, I show up and I show up late because it was L.A. and it was like three hours of traffic. Oh, no. And I get close to the school and there's parents picketing the outside. saying, get rid of the principal. Uh, I briefly meet the principal who is wearing a yellow leisure suit with yellow shoes and yellow socks. (laughs) And you still remember? This is a long time ago. Well, it it sticks with you. So I get there and I say, okay, 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 I'm really sorry. Where's my class? And they go, we've lost it. We don't know. We've lost Uh, your class. Right. So they don't know what room I'm in. They don't know where my students are. Oh, damn. So this school uh, was a tough place. It was a very tough place. And, and eventually they removed the principal and they brought in a new principal. And th- this principal started tardy sweeps. Okay. Right. You got to say what that means. What does that mean? Uh, there would be eight teachers during their break who would walk from end to end of the campus looking for stray students to chase them into class. Okay. And it was, all, it was, it was basically to get the discipline under control. And she One time she walked by my class and the kid had left a sandwich on the floor and she sort of told me in no uncertain terms, it is your responsibility to pick up that sandwich. It is your responsibility? Yeah, yeah, yeah to keep – well, we all have to pitch in together. So this was kind of a crazy thing, you know, that this, this utter chaos in this school. And then someone comes in and it's basically complete discipline. And so is, is this the way to make school districts better? But, well, one, never wear a yellow leisure suit, I think, is one really good it, it lesson was for a principal. It was, it was incredible. You know, I didn't see him enough to know if he, like, had that in every color. That's, that's <laughs> scary. Just to think about that is scary. I think – so, you know, do you come in and just with rule with an iron fist? Is, is that – Yeah, is this how you reform a school? I – have this organization called Challenge Success, and we go in and we work with leaders to help change schools. And we we definitely don't say rule with an iron fist. And my philosophy really came from our guest. Our philosophy is that you have to get everyone involved in the process of school reform, and you have to get all stakeholders, the, the teachers, the students, the parents, the administrators, everyone on the same page in order for it to work and stick. And, and in your situation, you didn't have any say. Your proposal strikes me as a different proposition. So your proposal is you go work within the system, whereas the proposal out there a lot is just replace it. Make right. new kinds of schools, just get rid of the admin- – blow the school up, start something different. Right. And yours is more, no, we can fix it from within. One school at a time, slowly, with a lot of dialogue. It's not easy. But if you want it to stick, 
that's what I have been taught. You know, so so, so like like a month per school. Yeah, oh, because it's that fast. Yeah, in a month, and we'll just have perfect schools in a month. No, Dan, this takes a really long time. Yeah, I can't. I can't just give all the kids computers, and it'll be better. No, and it's not about money. You can't just throw a bunch of money. No, it doesn't mean money doesn't matter. But just throwing money or throwing the latest fad in because the teachers will just cover their ears, close their doors, and just keep on teaching the way they've been teaching because they've they've been riding out these fads for a while. I see. So, I mean, we are incredibly lucky to have Dr. Larry Cuban with us today. Larry Cuban is a professor emeritus of education at the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford and a personal mentor of mine. I took Larry's classes. I've read his books. I actually, when people start working at Challenge Success, everybody reads a little bit of the chapter. We just did that at our staff retreat so that they know why we have the model that we have. I mean, it's really, really based on on Larry. So, so Larry, we're thrilled that you're here. Welcome. Thank and- you. Help us to understand what is what is going on here with school reform. How we how we change schools. What are is it imp- an impossible task? No, it's not an impossible task because a lot of it depends upon uh, how you define change. Schools have changed historically. I mean, we're talking about public schools founded in the middle early part of the 19th century. So that's uh, uh, over 150 years ago. One-room schools now are graded schools. There was never a kindergarten. Now there's a kindergarten. School now, uh, kids go through high school. They used to go through grammar school only. So you have these kinds of organizational governance changes. Curricular changes have been cyclical. Uh, there's been a new math every generation. <laughs> I, this is a problem. <laughs> Seriously. How many new maths can you have? All right. So, and Denise, you need to master them all. I know. This is, there's, we have this thing about math on the show. Right. Okay. So, yes. So, schools do change. The problem is that the current rhetoric is uh, first about uh, the factory model, get rid of it, blow up schools, close the worst schools, is very narrow and also has occurred repeated times in the past. Because in America, Schools are very vulnerable to societal, political, and economic changes. The cliche is that uh, when the nation has a cold, the schools sneeze. And, uh, <laughs> I and like it. A, I like that. And there's a good reason for that because in America, if you want to reform something, you have to hype up the crisis stage. And that's what we're in the middle of right now. Schools are lousy and everything like that. And what people do not do is make distinctions, demographic distinctions about uh, 100,000 schools. That's how many? Wait, there's about 100,000 schools in the U.S.? Yes. Uh, Wait, wait. (laughs) There are over 50 million kids. There are 13,000 school districts in 50 states and the territories. So you've got a massive system, highly decentralized, not like European or Asian nations that have ministries of education. Sure, we have a U.S. office of education, but it only contributes about eight or nine cents on every dollar spent in the, uh, in the country. Interesting. So you have these huge differences. You have a lot of suburban schools and ex-urban schools that parents are very pleased with. They don't want too much change to occur. That's why they locate in those districts. And then you have a lot of urban schools and big city districts that need a lot of change. 
And for any number of reasons, ranging from money to staffing to reluctance on the part of those elites that have a great deal of influence, those schools do need a lot of change because a lot of those schools, not all, a lot of those urban schools uh, have high dropout rates, uh, low graduation rates, and the usual litany that we often hear about. And principals wearing yellow leisure suits. Yeah. <laughs> and principals are doing that. Right? This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we are speaking with Larry Cuban, who is an expert on school change, school reform, how do you make schools better. And we're trying to figure out, okay, so there's been some change. Um, we didn't have kindergarten, now we have kindergarten. But a lot of us have kids in schools that look a lot like where we went to school sitting in desks with teachers at the front with, you know, maybe it's not a chalkboard, now it's a whiteboard, but it's it looks pretty similar. Is the teaching, has the teaching changed? Teaching has changed. Anyone, uh, how many years did you teach, Dan? About 10 total. Now, you remember that first year that you described? Yes. And think of your 10th year. Were they the same? Even uh, though the kids were different and everything? Uh, I can't do it. My 10th uh, my year was teaching in a small Athabascan village in Alaska. So it wasn't really comparable. No, but uh, you yeah. got better, right? Because that first day you had no know. training whatsoever. Uh, I don't know if I got better. I, I, I got better at discipline. If you, if you don't know how to do discipline, it's a lot of work. And I, and I got better at, at that. But, you know, I, I don't know if the kids learn better. That's a different question. Yeah. That's a different question and an important question. But do teachers change? The answer is yes. I taught for 14 years in three different uh, high schools, and I was a superintendent, and I visited uh, schools in the district. There were 35 schools in the district when I was superintendent. And so I saw a, a, a great landscape of teaching. And over time, I saw change. I was a superintendent for seven years. So teachers do change. Now, the problem, of course, is shift to the reform rhetoric and who the reformers are and the kinds of changes they want. And quite often, those reformers are disappointed because what they have is a vision of how schools ought to be and how teachers ought to teach and kids ought to learn. And those visions compete with one another. And so that's why a lot of people say teaching never changes. Now, what happens is what people forget is that teaching is shaped by organizations that they're uh, located within. And we have the age-graded school. The, you, the age grade meaning you're in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. First grade, you learn to read. Okay. Fourth grade, you learn state history. Sixth grade, you learn about Egyptian mummies. Because <laughs> that, that's really important. Eighth hey. grade, hey. Eighth, <laughs> eighth or ninth grade, it's algebra one. Yeah. So that's what I mean by the age graded school. And the curriculum is chopped up into chunk sizes bite-sized chunks for teachers to teach so that teacher teaches third grades and gets the kids ready for the fourth grade. Now, that has an influence on how teachers teach and, of course, what teachers teach. The age-graded school comes in in the middle of the 19th century and has been a fixture ever since. Every reform effort done by policy entrepreneurs today 
accepts the age-graded school as a constant without realizing how much influence it has on teachers who have to teach in self-contained classrooms, have to get kids ready for the next grade, and have the idea of normal, what a kid's supposed to learn in 180 school days. Right. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Larry Cuban about how to change schools, how to make them better, and why it's so darn hard. So what, wasn't this one of the arguments for uh, a common core is that if kids move from one state to another, say in third grade, they'll be sure that they come in with the same prior knowledge that all the other kids have. They'll be slotted in, and so they, they won't be put at risk by switching from one curriculum and age grading system than another. That is correct. Uh, that's the reform rationale for it, yeah. that there's a certain level of standardization it certainly fits in with No Child Left Behind, which was 2001, 2002, which uh, had uh, curriculum standards, testing and accountability. So Common Core is almost a, a natural uh, evolution toward having uh, standardized curriculum, in this case, uh, aiming at more ambitious teaching. Uh, the, the issue, uh, Dan and Denise, is that we've had standards movements for over 35 years, particularly since a nation at risk. Right. And standards have existed even before then. You go back to the 1920s because uh, that's the introduction of achievement testing, intelligence testing, and that will have a standardized, uh, standardizing effect also. So standards is now the reform du jour, but that doesn't mean it didn't occur uh, earlier and it doesn't mean that teachers don't change in response to that uh, organizational and environmental push, but it is not anything magical or uh, a panacea by any means. So I'm a mom. I have three kids. I was a teacher. I work with schools. It does drive me crazy that there's so much resistance to change on the part of everybody. So the teachers are like, oh, gosh, we tried that 10 years ago. We're going to do this again? No, we don't want to do it. Or the parents say, we just paid a ton of money to buy a house in this neighborhood. Don't mess with the school. We bought for the school. And the kids are saying, wait, we just figured out the system. Don't, don't, don't do project-based learning. Wait, don't make us work in groups. We just figured out how to play the game working individually. What do, you, what do you do, Larry? What do you say? What I'll say may not appeal to uh, listeners is that you have to understand the big picture. The big picture is that taxpayers with kids and without kids are compelled to pay for public schools. It's a tax-supported system in a decentralized system. And there are two main overriding purposes. One is to socialize kids into the norms of the community. And the other is to change them. From the get-go, those are conflicting. <laughs> yes, they from are. From the get-go. Wait, why? Why? I, I'm, I want, I'm changing them to fit the norms of my community. What, what's the conflict? Because there are others outside that say those norms have changed. Think of segregation and desegregation. I see. So uh, there are people always saying, hey, we can't teach to the previous generation. There's a lot of things going. You hear that argument now that we're no longer an industrial-based economy. We're an information-based economy. School's got to change. So you hear that all the time. And parents have to realize that teachers do change. They, not, they may not change at the pace that others want, nor toward the ends that others want. But 
teachers are changing within the confines of age-graded schools. It's just really slow because my kid's only in high school for four years. So if changes take 10, we're just going to have the same boring stuff happening. Not necessarily. Now, there's, uh, uh, there are reasons, as I said, why people are forced to send their kids to school. Now, you talk about change. Think of the Catholic Church, 2,000 years old. The, the reason, what, uh, a bunch of reasons account for its two millennia that has existed. One is that the church has changed over time. Small changes, not enough to satisfy its internal and external critics, but the church does change. The point being that's a private institution. Public institutions do change, not at the pace nor toward the ends that a lot of reformers want. So you're giving us some hope that there will be some change. We might see it in our lifetimes. We might see it in our kids' uh, schools happening now and um, that it's going to be slow and we may not see every bit of it. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. More with Larry Cuban and How You Change a School next on Sirius XM Insight 121. You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking today with Larry Cuban about school change and how hard it is to change and and reluctance to change on the part of so many of the school stakeholders. And Larry, when I get pushback, when uh, I'm working with schools and parents say, we we don't want change, or teachers say, we don't want change, or we, you know, I I, I tell this story. I say, wait, wait, are you talking on the same telephone as you talked on when you were growing up? No, right? Are you driving the same car as you drove when you, you know, turned 16? No. But why would you then think that schools don't learn and change and become more modern? Are they, they're totally um, denying what, what Dan and I and you do for a living, which is study education and try to make it better and learn from mistakes and do research. So that's a frustration of mine. Let's talk about technology in schools and how that has changed over time. There used to be slate blackboards, textbooks, pen and quill. I was going to say, we still have textbooks, Larry. That hasn't changed. But pen and quill, yeah, I'll give you that one. Okay. And then over the decades and even over the century, you move to film. Thomas Edison introduces film. Then you have classroom radio and then instructional television and then computers beginning in the early 80s. Now, the computer is a very powerful machine, much more so, and it does not come out of the entertainment medium as the others did. And computers have had great access and increased use over the past three decades. And now there are so many districts that have one uh, laptop, one tablet per child. So the access issue has been successful, more so than for instructional TV or any of the other increases in electronic technologies. And so there have been these um, massive changes. Now, uh, more and more teachers use technology than I began studying the teacher use in the mid-1980s. And I've seen, and I've, every decade, I've studied uh, particular schools and teachers. And I've seen the use become widespread. 
And I've seen all kinds of uses in classrooms where teachers do change their lessons because they have access to these devices. So those changes have occurred because of these technologies. But uh, what I have been most interested in is how these technologies are no longer golly gee whiz in the foreground. What I've seen much more, particularly in the last two years uh, where I've studied these schools and teachers, is that technology has moved to the background. And what has come to the foreground is learning and content. And how do you use these different devices to reach those goals? So there have been changes. Well, that's good. As a parent, that's that makes me happy, at least, right, that it's now in the background, but learning and content are at the foreground. Yeah, and one of, one of the things that's happening with the technology is it's it's no longer sort of reproducing what came before. So, you know, these big online courses that showed up, they're called MOOCs, Massively Online Open Courses. Uh, they really copied the classroom lecture, right. and, they, and, and now it's changing. You know, you have these simulations that you could have never done otherwise, and People are trying to figure out how to use these science simulations for kids to learn. So there are changes. Uh, do they make all people better? I don't know. You know, how would you decide? Which leads me to my question. Uh, so I'm, I'm a parent, and I have my own vision of utopia. Larry wrote a very famous famous book called Tinkering Towards Utopia. With David Tyak. With David Tyak, yes. And uh, it was Tinkering Towards Utopia. And so I'm a parent, and I have my version of utopia – I think a lot of parents, the current version of utopia is that my kid will get into college. So that getting into college is utopia. And sort of like a Jane Austen novel where it ends when the character gets married, the utopia ends when my kid gets into college. Oh, God. Scary. No, true, Was, was true. that too, too liberal artsy? I actually to really, know that. I like the Jane Austen reference. It sort of shocked me coming out of your mouth, but I'm, t- I'm right there with you. I'm a former English teacher, as you know. And I'm, a, I'm a closet Victorian literary. You are. Damn. So, and all the parents will have different utopias. Correct. And so now I, I'm a parent trying to pick a school that matches my utopia. Right. Is this possible? Is it, you know, because some parents really have a vision for their child of X. Or are they always going to all be a little dissatisfied that, that my child's puberty experience was tough? Well, it wasn't uh, utopian. <laughs> that may have nothing to do with the school, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the answers are yes and yes, as I recall the question. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I was ranting. <laughs> there are different utopias, and they are anchored in a lot of parents' beliefs about how best teachers should teach, how best kids should learn, and what content and skills they should have. So the utopias are going to vary. And they will vary, interestingly enough, by child-rearing practices. There have been uh, deep beliefs on the part of parents about how kids should be raised, going back to the Puritans, going through the 20th century about uh, with Benjamin Spock and the current child-rearing manuals that are given now. Child-rearing practices and beliefs shape a lot about these utopias. Mm -hmm. So that for the sake of example, I want my child's teacher to be able to individualize what uh, lessons for my kid because my kid is not the same as Johnny, Mary, Jose, and the other kids. So I want that individualization. Another parent will say, uh uh-uh, there's a certain body of knowledge that I want my kids to know. Chemistry is chemistry. Algebra is algebra. 
And by God, I want my teacher to get that across to the kids. I don't care whether it's whole group, individual or small group. These kids have to learn the content and skills. So I've given you the kind of two almost polar extremes with a lot of places in between. And those are the different utopias that parents bring to schooling, which then creates a lot of satisfaction and dissatisfaction depending on the demographics and where you live. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we're speaking with Larry Cuban about if you're a parent, how do you choose a school and how do you make sure you're choosing one that's going to work for your sense of utopia, your ideal? And it sounds like it's not easy. No, it's not easy. Even though parental choice has expanded, particularly in urban areas, with charter schools, with alternative schools, magnets, in suburban areas too. So uh, the choice has increased, but it still makes the determination about is this the best school for my kid still mean it's up to the parent to make those kinds of decisions. So when people, when parents ask me what they do, I say you go to the school. Uh, spend a day uh, with the school, whether it's elementary or secondary. Talk to the teachers. Listen to the teachers. Talk to the principal. Watch the, uh, the kids, how they uh, behave in class. When the period is over, the halls, what they do in recess, you can't beat that. If you do not do that, then you are not really able to make an informed choice for your kids. And that doesn't mean only for charters or alternative schools. It means for your neighborhood school. And it gives you a kind of a purchase on what you can do. I think that's really useful information. To, to know what's going on, you've got to go, you've got to see it. And a lot of parents will say, well, I'm not a teacher, I'm not going to know what to look for. But I think that's really important because you'll get a feel. So yeah. just to summarize, the way I decide what school matches my vision of utopia is I do the sniff test. This, yeah. The sniff test. Yeah. I just sniff around and say, does this seem like it fits my vision? Well, and I think you get a feel and you say, does this, do, do I like the feel here? Is it a caring school? Do the kids look engaged? Does it feel like they're learning the kinds of things I want my own child to learn? I mean, I, that yeah. Was that caring? That was not the school I wanted to send my kids to. <laughs> <laughs> See, Dan, you and I have different utopian visions yes, for correct. our children. <laughs> but I think at the bottom line, you want it to be safe. Yes. Which Always. your school where you Always. first taught wasn't, yes. right? I think you want kids to really be excited and engaged and love what they're doing. And I think you as a parent want to have a sense of comfort as you send them out on the bus every morning. Very good. Very Thank good. you, Larry Cuban. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're on the campus of Stanford University and on Sirius XM Insight 121. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.